Hello and welcome. My name is Alice and this is the Backtracker History Show podcast, where I ask you to join me on a meander down through the archives to find out more about the people, places and events from the past. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at UK the capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. In this special Remembrance Sunday episode, you'll hear the memories of people who lived through World War II read out by actors. The white cliffs of Dover Tomorrow Just you wait and see Vera Lynn's iconic song Bluebirds Over the White Cliffs of Dover The song was written about a year after the Royal Air Force and German Luftwaffe aircraft had been fighting over southern England including the White Cliffs of Dover, in the Battle of Britain. Nazi Germany had conquered much of Europe and in 1941 was still bombing Britain. With neither America nor the Soviet Union having yet joined the war, Britain was the only major force fighting the Axis powers in Europe. The American lyricist Nat Burton wrote his lyric, totally unaware that the bluebird is not indigenous to Britain, and asked Walter Kent to set it to music. Notable phrases include thumbs up, which was an RAF and RCAF term for permission to go, and flying in those angry skies where the air war was taking place. The lyrics looked towards a time when the war would be over and peace would rule over the iconic White Cliffs, Britain's symbolic border with the European mainland. And now for our first memory from World War II. This is the recollections of Ian Brown. The dog's name was Gunner. My uncle brought him back from World War II. He was raised and slept under my uncle's anti-aircraft gun. The gun crew shared their rations to feed him. By the time he was 18 months old, my uncle said he would stand up and look at the sky. If he lay back down, they knew all was okay. If he growled and put his hackles up, they got ready. He knew the sound of the German aircraft and my uncle said he never got it wrong. He said Gunner was better than any early warning system. I'm probably the only one left in the family that knows that story now. So I thought I'd tell it before it gets lost forever. Like many stories must be from that time. Word of the week. And this week, 
I am proud to give you... G-Man. You may know that this is a term for a federal agent, but did you know that it was coined by George Machine Gun Kelly, who is probably considered one of the most famous gangsters from the Prohibition era? Now here's another World War II memory, this time from Betty Whitehouse. My cousin, called Hadley, he was older than me, so I knew very little about him. But I was told that he was a pilot who flew spies into occupied territories. This meant flying at night with no lights and so low as to avoid enemy radar, and was one of the most dangerous missions that a pilot could fly. He safely completed 15 such missions, but at the end of the war, on a housekeeping day run, the plane landed badly at Brussels airport, and everyone was killed. The weather's fine for flying the fog has gone to bed There's such good visibility you could see That was Bing Crosby with the Bombardier song. Now, are you aware that in the three years, eight months of the war, Crosby made eight full-length films, 12 short films, including guest appearances, appeared in at least 190 other radio programmes, recorded 160 songs for commercial release... And out of these, an incredible 54 were top 30 hits, including nine, which reached number one. In addition to his songs, White Christmas and Swingin' on a Star, he won the Oscar for the best film song for their respective years. A total of 71 V-discs were issued containing his material, and some of which were specially recorded. In all, Crosby spent a total of 25 weeks touring to entertain servicemen, and that's without adding in his numerous weekend trips. His fundraising activities resulted in sales of millions of dollars of war bonds, and he raised substantial amounts for USO, Red Cross, and other charities. Call it a day. Say we done it again. Now next we have a memory from Gloria Brown. All the local residents were having a tea party to mark VE Day in Wellington Square, Oxford, in May 1947. Four soldiers had simply been walking past and were happy to join in the fun. It was first having served in Egypt and Singapore. My dad, Frank Coleman, was transferred to Burma to fight the Japanese. He didn't talk much about the war. I think he would rather forget the horrors that he witnessed. He did, however, share a couple of stories with us, which I hope you will find interesting. One day, he left the camp to relieve himself, and he could hear rustling behind him, and thought it was a Japanese soldier creeping up on him. He turned quickly, with his gun in his hand, ready to shoot, and a wild boar ran out of the undergrowth. 
When he got back to camp, he was relaying the story to his friends. Still in a bit of shock and his hands shaking, he accidentally pulled the trigger of his gun and nearly shot one of his own men. He was a sergeant in the 25th Dragoons and served in the tank regiment. One day while they were making camp, he sent four of his men out to cut down some nearby trees, which he thought the Japanese could use to look down on them. It was the last he would see of these men. They didn't make it back to camp. I'm sure this would have played on his mind and no doubt sharing this story helped him in some way. Another story he told us was that one Christmas Eve they managed to make some kind of Christmas cake in an old biscuit tin. They all sat around the campfire eating the cake and started singing Christmas carols. He said he started to cry. He looked around at his friends and everyone had tears running down their faces. He was already abroad when war broke out and it would be six years before he returned home to his future wife, Mary, and the woman that would become my mum. He would have been away longer had it not been for a stomach ulcer. When he got off the train at Oxford Station, he was met by my mum's father. Where's Mary? he asked him. To which he replied, She's on the other platform waiting in the same spot you left her six years ago. They got married in 1944 and raised four children and were together until his death. next memory comes from Betty Whitehouse. When we lived in Manchester, Jerry, our dog, could hear the sirens in the next district before the sirens in our district went off and would howl loudly so the family were always forewarned and we were always first in the shelter. One night we had got to the shelter early when I discovered I had left my favourite toy behind and I was inconsolable. So my mother, Anne, defied the wardens and in the pitch black crept back to the house to rescue my toy. We all had a lucky escape as the bomb had dropped down the side of our gatepost but didn't explode. Although we couldn't return home until it was removed. We've come a long way in the fight against COVID-19. Many more of our favourite places are fully open for business again. Shops, stadiums, cafes, cinemas and nightclubs. And if we work together, we can keep them that way. But the virus is still with us, so we should all carry on protecting our friends and family. So if you have mild symptoms, don't guess. Take a test and stay at home if you think you could have the virus, even if you've been vaccinated. Let's keep life moving. Find out more at nhs.uk slash get tested. You're listening to a rather special Remembrance show, highlighting the lives and memories of those who lived through World War II, including this one from Sarah. John was my granddad. He rescued Sammy, a small monkey, from the food market. He had hoped to bring him back to the UK as a pet for the girls, 
but while he was away, one of the cooks stole him for the cooking pot. Now here's a story about their great-grandfather from Finlay and Cameron. Our great-grandfather, William Henry Gillingham, had his picture taken around 1914, an official photo in uniform at the start of World War I. He survived the trenches of Ypres in the Suffolk and Cambridge Regiment, and he received the military medal. His son, Walter Charles Gillingham, worked for the water board, so he didn't have to serve as he kept the water supply going through World War II to Cambridgeshire. And then his son, our late great-uncle, was posted to Malaysia for his national service. Three generations all served in different ways. Here's another story by Sarah Andre Marie about the woman who she was named after. My grandfather's wife, Andre Marie, had a portrait photo taken as a turning of age gift. Her gilded future was soon to come crashing down, as not long after this, her 14 year old brother was drowned in an accident, and she and her parents, who were a count and a countess, fled from the German persecution in Belgium to the then safer city of Paris. Andre Marie was incredibly brave for her age, and despite knowing the risk, she still chose to run messages for the Parisian resistance. Eventually, the Germans caught her and she was arrested. Other than she was badly treated, she would not be drawn on what happened to her in those terrible weeks before she was released. Although one thing we do now know is that they sterilised her by irradiating her ovaries. After this, she did not leave her flat for six months, not until the day Paris was liberated by Monty and his men, one of whom was my grandfather, which is how a shy Englishman on a rainy Parisian street met his soon-to-be wife. Sadly, although the marriage was as happy as it could be, in the aftermath of war it was short-lived, as the irradiation had caused André Marie irreparable damage, and she died aged 32. My father was American, Walter Dale Huggins. He signed up to the Merchant Marines in Seattle in August 1941. For three years, he sailed the route to Alaska, transporting troops, bombs, ammunition, equipment, food and building supplies. He worked in the engine room while studying. He passed his exams in Alameda, California and was commissioned as ensign in the US Maritime Service with a licence for a steam or diesel ship of any tonnage on any sea or ocean. He sailed out of San Francisco, transporting war materials and supplies all around the Pacific ports and islands, from China to South America, often coming under fire and seeing the horrendous aftermath of fighting. He recounted one incident where they painted the whole ship Battleship Grey from top to bottom in 24 hours. And another incident where they left a harbour just minutes before the Japanese destroyed it. He spent five years on the high seas, dodging attacks and having many adventures, 
before returning to the quiet little farming community he had come from. And that was a memory from Lynn Huggins about her father. I'd just like to clarify that all these memories have been read out by volunteers. Back in the day facts. Now here are some facts about Remembrance Day, which was first observed in 1919 throughout the British Commonwealth. It was originally called Armistice Day to commemorate the Armistice Agreement that ended the First World War on Monday, November 11th, 1918 at 11am on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. On Remembrance Sunday, Her Majesty the Queen, members of the Royal Family, top politicians and VIPs attend a big ceremony at the Cenotaph in Whitehall, London, which is very near the Houses of Parliament, Downing Street, where the Prime Minister lives, as well as near Buckingham Palace. This memorial service is always shown on live television in the UK. Sometimes Remembrance Day is referred to as Poppy Day. The poppy is a symbol of the fallen soldier from World War I. Poppies grew in many of the fields in Flanders, Belgium, where the battles took place, and the red colour of the poppies symbolises the blood spilled in the war. Poppies were mentioned in the First World War poem in Flanders Field, by Lieutenant Colonel John McRae from Canada. The poem was very popular at the time. Paper poppies are sold every year in the weeks before Remembrance Sunday to raise money for soldiers and families of soldiers. All TV presenters, politicians and lots of people around the UK wear a poppy in the weeks before Poppy Day. You can even buy a Remembrance poppy to put on the front of your car. And now it's time for me to say goodbye, but I would like to offer my thanks to the following people who helped bring this show to life. And they are... Joe Wilson, Carrie Ball, Kate Kendall and Sam Roberts from St Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol, as well as Sandra Hobson, Finley Ratnett, Steve Shepherd, and Catherine Ayres from Bradley Stoke Radio. You have been listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. Now, this podcast has been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. If you liked it, please leave a rating and maybe a comment. If you didn't, well, let's just leave it at that, shall we? I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me via Twitter or Facebook using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. Or, alternatively, you can email me at info at backtracker.co.uk. By the way, the tune in the background, that's by The Model Folk. You can find out more about them at themodelfolk.com. So thank you so much for listening. And until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. <laughs>